And I'm Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Cross Point Community Church. And we say thank you for continuing to be with us during our series, Colorblind. And uh, we, again, we're in an increasingly divisive time in our country. And it centers currently around racial relationships. And it's even hard to watch TV. It's difficult to be on social media. There's just so many different opinions and ideas and thoughts. And um, some are extremely hurtful. Some are just totally out of, out of basis of somewhere, somehow they found this idea and they're propagating it, and so much of what is being propagated is untrue. So during this series, Colorblind, I want us, and I believe that it is pertinent, it's important, I would be remiss as a pastor of a white, predominantly white evangelical church to not discuss the issue of race. And so over the past weeks, we're going to, a few weeks coming ahead, we're going to be talking about this idea of what the Bible says about race. You can see I've got this wonderful game that maybe many of you have played called Jenga. And it's kind of like a house being built up. And most of us, when we play this wonderful game Jenga, the first place that we, that we start is we'll take a block from somewhere here that feels safe and we'll take it and we'll move it. And those of us that are risky, we'll come down here to the bottom and begin to do that because we want to see how uh, brave our people that we're playing the game with are when the Jenga house begins to shake. I see Jenga kind of how the American church and even much of American culture has been built. We have built a house upon a shaky foundation when we downplay the issue of race. And so this morning I want us to think about this idea of Jenga and that maybe the house in many ways needs to tumble because we need to pull out some of the foundational things that have created that our nation has been built upon. Even white evangelical Protestant churches have been built upon. Maybe we need to pull some of these things out and let the house fall so that the house can be rebuilt properly. Even this idea of race is a relatively new idea and concept. Technically, ethnicity is what we should be talking about. Ethnicity refers to the way people identify themselves based upon the commonalities in their language, the history, the ancestry, their nationality and customs and the food that we eat and the art that's created. And so when this nation was first started, there were French and German and Thai and Filipino, people from all different ethnicities would come. But in the midst of the creation of Our economy and our well-being as a nation, we thought, was built upon the backs of slavery. When that became prominent, we began to push against that idea. Everybody that was not black became one because they didn't want to be held against, they didn't want that to be held against them. And so we see this drawing together of a distinction between white and black so that we could push further our ideas of slavery. Race is a social construct that began in the 1600s here in America so that slaveholders could hold themselves and begin to put other people outside of themselves so that they could force the idea of, hey, if you are black or if you're African American, we can enslave you and hold you as a slave to do work for us because you are less than us. Therefore, we can own you. When Europeans first colonized America, the concept of race wasn't quite here. We'd see the French and the Italians and so on, and that began to change as much more as slavery became integral 
to the American fabric, especially the economic machine that we were created. The horror of slavery is the major moral issue and crisis for America that we've kind of dealt with here and there. We've slowly moved it forward, but so many times we've stopped and paused and not really dealt with the issues at the bottom and dealt with the foundation upon which our nation and many of our churches are built upon. We began to de-emphasize the differences between the various European ethnicities. As a matter of fact, early on in history, African Americans and Irish Americans were both considered mulattoes. They were both considered outsiders. But as we continued to push this idea of slavery, Italians found a way. We, they moved themselves into the Caucasian group because they didn't want to be called and fit in with the African American group. And so we see this movement so that we could have white people and everyone else. David Rodiger, who's a professor at the University of Kansas and a professor of American history, wrote a book, The Wages of Whiteness. And in it, he contends that the construct, the construct was a conscious effort by slave owners to gain distance from those that they enslaved. Therefore, they continued to push this idea of whiteness, and everyone outside of that could be held to a different standard. I believe that we have built a house upon a, fa- a faulty foundation when we downplay race. Well, what does the Bible say about race? The first thing is this I want you to get from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says this, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. Now this let us is a beautiful illustration of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together in unity, in fellowship, said let's create in the image of of us, to be like us. And this means that several things. One, that be like us is to have fellowship together, to have community, but also this ability to have relationship. This idea of a soul that whenever they cre- we were created, we breathe, God breathed his breath into his ruach into us. And in that moment, he gave us a soul and the ability to have community, not only with others, but an ability to have a relationship with him. And so let us Create man in the image of God means that we can have a relationship with him and we can have a relationship with others because of the soul that he's given us. They will reign over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, the livestock and all the animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. So the first thing that I want you to get in this idea of from the beginning is we were made, we were created in the image of God. What does that mean? It's imago Dei, that we have this soul and that we're the pinnacle of creation. We have the ability to reason, we have the ability to think, we have the ability to grow, we have the ability to develop, and we're a complex being. And that we're created to have fellowship with God. As a matter of fact, apart from God means that we experience, we don't get to experience the fullness of what it means to be human because we're missing out on an opportunity to have a relationship with our Creator. And when we miss out on the opportunity to, to have that relationship with the Creator, then we miss out on the full opportunity of what it means to be completely human. When race entered the picture we were, this relationship was distorted. We intentionally, theologically, 
distorted this relationship. If you look at the American Constitution, there came a point where there was a three-fifths compromise, and the three-fifths compromise stated that an African-American person could count as three-fifths of a person. That goes contradictory to this. So that in our American Constitution, we said if you see someone who is black, don't see them as a whole person, see them as three-fifths of a person. That is unbiblical. And this was propagated by pastors, theologians, wise people. Why? Because we were worried about the economic purposes, the economic things, and we were separating ourselves as white people from black people, and we said three-fifths of a person. Also, have you heard of the one-drop rule? The one-drop rule is, is if you have any drop of blood in you that is not completely white, then you are not white. Listen, we're all mutts. We are all mutts. None of us are completely pure. That is an insane idea for us to propagate. But it was propagated. Why? So that we could hold other people separate from ourselves. That we would somehow or another find that there was not a drop of any other persons except for white within our blood. And we all know that that is not true. The more that we do DNA research and ancestry research, we understand that we are mixes here and there, and that the only reason that you're the certain shade of color you are is because at this time God chose that your DNA to look like this shade of melatonin. That's it. You don't know. Three-fifths of a person in a one-drop rule or unbiblical concepts that we pushed. Can you imagine how someone would feel if they're told that they're less than human? So we were made, and we were made in the image of God, and then finally this idea of biblical is that you are uniquely you. That there are currently about 7 billion people in the earth that are living, walking around, and no one on earth is exactly like you. Now, some of you are saying, you're like, hey, listen, I'm so good, God broke the mold. Others of you are like, thank goodness, no one else would want to deal with the stuff that I deal with. But here's the beauty, is that God doesn't make junk. He makes unique, one-of-a-kind masterpieces, and no matter what shade of color your skin is, you are unique. And that's the beauty of how God creates us. In the beginning, God did not make a mistake when He created different shades. He created unique individuals. There's not three-fifths of a person. There's not different drops of blood. There's one drop. It's red blood. As a matter of fact, the person who figured out that we could transfuse blood was an African-American. You are uniquely you. So what do we think about this idea of race? The second thing I want you to grab in this idea of race is in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. From one man, Adam, he created all nations. Now, this word nations is literally ethnos, all ethnicities, all ethnics throughout the whole earth. From one man, Adam, he created all of the ethnicities throughout the whole earth. Every human being can trace their heritage to one guy. So we can ask all of you, who's your daddy? You would say, Adam. 
Adam is my father. As a matter of fact, when I was in Thailand several years ago, one of the things we're sitting down in a in a hut and generators going, and there's a, a gentleman. He's well into his 80s, and as we're sitting there talking to him, he was shocked to see us because we were so white, and he had never seen a white person before, at least the shade of white that I am, and he thought that I lived under the sea because he didn't know that the earth was round. To him, he thought the earth was flat, and at the end, you dropped off. Now, this was in the 2000s, okay? It's not that long ago. And so he's looking at me, asking me the question, how did I come from under the sea to get to this place? And so with a group of teenagers, I began to talk about, hey, here is the earth, and here is the sun, and how it rotates. And he's just shocked by this. And it's just this idea of, of continual growth, but in the midst in the midst of this, one of the things that he stopped and he shared about himself and his heritage was that he could go from himself all the way back. He could count his lineage through his fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-great-great-great-great, all the way down, all the way to his daddy, Adam. Now, we were there for a long time listening to him repeat, and he could have left out a couple of generations, who knows, but we were there and listening to, and again, it, it just reminded me of the fact of this question of who is your daddy, and around the world, we are who we are because it all started with Adam. Every human can trace their heritage to Adam. Now we see in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel that there was this dispersion of people groups and began to see that movement. And then you jump to the New Testament and Peter was someone who was a Jew of Jews. And he was struggling with his Jewishness and as he became a Christian, what it meant for him and what was God was asking him to do to, to move out of some of the things that he thought were religious laws and expectations. And so one of those things was because he was Jewish, he could not touch, he could not eat, he could not go into the home of someone who was not a Jew. But now he is a follower of Jesus, and in that he's having to go places and thinking about stuff that he had never thought about before. And so one day he's, he falls asleep and God talks to him in a vision and he drops down in this vision, he drops down a sheet and touches all four corners and God says to him, all things that I have created are clean and pure. Peter's like, I don't, I don't understand God. And so this, this vision just kind of sat with him and resonated with him. And not too long after a servant of a man named Cornelius came up to Cornelius' house and knocked on the door and said, hey, Peter, my my boss, Cornelius, would, and wants to have you over to his house. And so Peter goes, and he gets over there, and he realizes, oh, no, Cornelius is not Jewish. He's a Greek. But God just told me that if I've created, then they're pure. They're clean. And so he sits at the table and begins to eat with Cornelius and his family, something that he would have never done before. And listen to this. In Acts chapter 10, he says, Then Peter replied. There was a question that was asked. Peter, why would you sit? at the dinner table of Cornelius, when you're a good Jew. He says this, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. No favoritism. This idea of favoritism is, is that as God looks on someone's face, He doesn't judge by their face, but He judges by their character. That God does not look upon someone's face and decide that he's, they're His favorite or not. He looks at the heart. He determines our character by looking 
at our heart. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Here's Samuel and, and David and, and uh, Saul. There was this discussion going on. And the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, the character. So think of it this way. If there is no race, and we all have the same dad, and dad shows no favoritism and looks at the heart, what could community, what could true community look like? Let me say that again. If there is no race, and we all have the same dad, and dad shows no favoritism and just looks at our heart, what can true community look like? Here it is in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too large, too great to count. Where's this crowd from? From every nation, from every ethnos and tribe and people and language. In other words, in heaven, John looks out and Jesus shows him worship in heaven. And John, as he looks over the vast crowd, what does he see? He sees people from everywhere, of every state of color, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every nation. It's this diverse group that are, what are they doing? They're bowing down before Jesus and they're saying, He is worthy. He is the Lamb of God. That that is what true community can look like. Why? Because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, because we are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 27, the verse right before this. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism and put on Christ, it's like putting on new clothes. In other words, that when we say yes to Jesus, we have a jersey, and it's all about the jersey that we're wearing. That his dad looks at his children, he's looking at us, and he's saying, listen, I'm glad that you're wearing this jersey. So we know it's not a Cowboys jersey or a Texans jersey, right? I mean, who knows what jersey? But it is a jersey that we're all wearing. It identifies us as his children, and so that we can do life because we're not looking at the shade of color on someone's skin, we're asking this question. Does my neighbor, are they wearing the jersey and clothes of Jesus? If they are, then they're a brother and sister of mine in Christ. If they're not wearing that jersey, then I need to be doing everything I can possibly do to share how much my Father loves me and loves them So that they will be able and have the same desire to wear the jersey that I'm wearing because we're on the winning team. And that victory is found in Jesus by wearing this jersey. And in all honesty, as followers of Jesus, we should not want anyone to not wear the jersey of Jesus Christ. But sometimes out of fear, sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes out of just we don't, we don't know what to do or to say. We don't approach and deal with the issues at hand. And we don't push people, discuss people, discuss with people what it's like to wear the jersey of Jesus Christ. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, for we are all one in 
Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. It's this idea through this one jersey. And the reason that we can come together in community is because there's peace amongst us. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. There's nothing separating us anymore in Christ. That, that The solution is Christ. He's the one that has brought peace. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. In other words, we're all wearing the same jersey. We all have the same purpose, the same agenda, the same mission, the same vision. And together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God. By means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Peace. It's this word shalom. Shalom carries this idea of peace and health and prosperity. In a book, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Him, author John Ortberg kind of flashes out this idea of shalom. What would it look like if shalom was actually happening in the world today? What would it look like if health and prosperity and peace was actually fleshed out in our communities? And I'm going to read this passage. It's a little long, but I want you to hear how this would impact our lives. In a world where shalom prevailed, all marriages would be healthy and children would be safe. Those who have too much to give would give to those who have too little. Israeli and Palestinian children would play together on the West Bank. The parents would build homes for one another. In offices and in corporate boardrooms, executives would secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They would compliment them behind their backs. Tabloids would be filled with accounts of courage and moral beauty. Talk shows would feature mothers and daughters who love each other deeply. And wives who give birth to their husbands, children, and men who secretly enjoy dressing as men. Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. There would still be lawyers, but perhaps... They would have really useful jobs like delivering pizza, which would be non-fat and low in cholesterol. Doors would have no locks. Cars would have no alarms. Schools would no longer need police presence or even hall hall monitors because students and teachers and janitors would honor and value one another's work. At recess, every kid would get picked for a team. Churches would never split. People would neither be bored nor hurried. Fathers would never say again, I'm too busy to a disappointed child. Our national sleep deficit would be paid off. Starbucks would still exist, but only sell decaf. I don't know about that. This is what we would look like if we lived up to the norms set by God's human life and this idea of shalom. This is what normal would be. One day... It will be. Divorce courts and battered women's shelters will be turned into community recreation centers. Every time one human being touched another, it would be to express encouragement, affection, and delight. No one would be lonely or afraid. 
people of different races and different races would join hands. They would be honored and enriched by their differences and be united in common humanity. And in the center of the entire community would be the magnificent architect and most glorious resident. The God whose presence fills each person with unceasing splendor and ever-increasing delight. The writers of Scripture tell us this vision of the way that is the way that things are supposed to be. This is what it would look like if we lived up to the norms God set for human life. If our world were truly normal and filled with shalom, one day it will be. And you see what community could look like if we were for one another? If we're only thing that we really saw in differences in us is what God saw in us is that His creation and His children and that God desired that all of His creation would have an Abba Father relationship with Him. That they could experience the fullness of humanity and that our souls would not be void of what we long for the most, which is a relationship with God Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. We can have Shalom. Like I said at the beginning, I believe that our houses have been built on unstable ground. And my prayer is, is that as particularly a white pastor of an evangelical, predominantly white church, that if it takes us pulling out the bottom blocks and making the foundation shaky, so that things can be rebuilt and rebuilt right, that we do it. So this week, these coming weeks, one of the things that we need to do as a people is begin to seriously pray about how, do, how does God see us and find our identity in Him and in Him alone and make sure that the jersey that we're wearing is one of peace that's built upon our relationship with Jesus. And begin to put the glasses with which God sees people and the lenses with which he sees them. And it's not about different shades of color, but it's about the jersey that's being worn. And as God calls us to love our neighbors, that we love them with depth and joy and an opportunity to, one, share who we are in Christ, or one, is to share who we are in Christ so that they might see the beauty of what it means to be a child of God. Ways that we can do that this week is we've been setting our alarms for 7.14 a.m. and 7.14 p.m. based upon Second Chronicles 7.14, which says, If my people will humble themselves, seek my face, and pray, then I will heal their land. I truly believe that that land that first needs to be healed is the land that's in our own hearts. That our own hearts need to be healed. The soil of our heart needs to be tilled up. And the truth and justice of God's word needs to be planted there so that healing can come and restoration can come. So that then as a community, we can look like a Revelation 7, 9, and 10 community. That as people look out, that we can say we are a diverse body that is seeking Jesus. And that the only shade of color we see is by the jersey that we're wearing. So I ask you if you would set your alarms for 7.14 a.m. and p.m. and just begin to pray that prayer. God, heal my heart. Heal this land here and give me new eyes. Maybe something else that you need to do is maybe 
you need to find a day or a time where you begin to fast. Whether that's fasting from food, whether that's fasting from media, whatever that is that is good for you to pull away from for a little bit so that it focuses your heart and mind's attention upon the issue of I need to be aware of, I need God to do something in me. This is important. And it's more important than food. It's more important than my Netflix binge. It's more important than whatever it may be. And to give that up so that you can turn your heart's and mind's attention to the issue of whose jersey am I wearing. May our house crumble so that all can get justice, no matter the shade of color. May this house crumble so that the conversations that parents have about sending their children out, that they are not conversations of, if you're a black man, that you may not come home. May it be conversations where when someone goes to Walmart or Target or to some store and a little girl wants a doll that looks like her, that there's all shades of colors of dolls that look like her because we are all uniquely created in the eyes of God. So that every little girl can be a princess, no matter what shade. May our house crumble. May our hearts be remade. And may they be healed. May this land be healed. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, we confess that the healing that needs to take place starts in our own hearts. The lenses, the perspective that needs to change starts with our eyes starts with our soul. Father, may we ask you, we're asking you, may you dig deep into our hearts and may you do the work that's necessary. May you shake the foundation of our hearts and how we see and how we view and how we think. Father, may we, with your eyes, see those that wear the jersey and those that don't. May we love equally, but may we share the good news of Jesus Christ so that all that we know and all that we can come come in contact with may experience the shalom peace of Jesus Christ. May that be our foundation. It's in your son's name that we pray.